hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zach. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, right. Hello, and welcome to episode 350 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud. 19-year young adult cancer survivor broadcasting now right here from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every single year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. This episode, part one of a series on young adult lung cancer, we're going to be speaking with the uh, Bonnie J. Adario Foundation's founder, Bonnie J. Adario, uh, Emily Bennett-Taylor, who is a spokesperson, patient advocate, and young adult lung cancer survivor, and Stephen Young, president and COO of the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute. The international genomics of young adult lung cancer is a thing. We'll be discussing that, too. And a survivor spotlight on young adult brain cancer survivor and New York's bravest and finest. I get them confused. I know you hate that. Matt Sobuk. And let's kick off the show here. I just ruined your intro, but that's okay. Sorry. You're the bravest. They're the finest. Or they're the finest. You're the bravest. Okay. You're both We're brave and fine. You're the finest. Yeah. And the bravest of the firefighters. Yeah. All right. From a layperson's perspective, as a compliment. You're both brave and fine. Thank you. And Corrections is the boldest, right? <laughs> That's right, the boldest. It's pretty bold, I guess. Yes. Hello, Kenny. Hello, Mallory. Hello, Matt. Hello, Sean. Hello. How are Hello. you? What's going on? We are probably the lamest. We are <laughs> <laughs> I would go with the lamest. All right. What's going on this week? How you been? I'm doing well. You're off to Hawaii soon. I am off to Hawaii on Wednesday. For what? I am speaking at Journey Together, a young adult cancer conference. Uh, they reached out to us several months ago and said, hey, we're having our first conference with a spotlight on young adult cancer and we would love for someone from Stupid Cancer to come. That's pretty awesome. And you're seeing my old friend Chrissy Tarawaki. Yes, uh, a.k.a. Crispy Teriyaki. Crispy Teriyaki, yeah. She's, <laughs> yeah. she's amazing. She's one of the originals. I remember. Years and years ago, yeah. Pretty awesome, pretty awesome. So what are you going to be talking about? Just Stupid Cancer and your uh, story? Yeah, I'm sharing the story of uh, my dad's uh, journey through testicular cancer and my role in that, as well as stupid cancer and the evolution of uh, the organization and the movement. Very nice. Yes. Mal, what you been up to? Oh, I went out to Long Island this last weekend for my grandfather's 75th birthday. Wow. Yes. That's good. So there's lots of family stuff this weekend. Getting old is a good thing. Yes. I was on Long Island, too. Ah, the good old Long Island yes. train. <laughs> I, have, I, I have a great story, actually. I... Typically change the oil on my motorcycle twice a season because I don't really put enough miles on it to warrant more than that. Right. Um, and I dropped the oil plug, took the filter off, put the new filter on, and put the new oil in, but I forgot to put the fil the plug back in. <laughs> so I... This is only ending badly. I sufficiently uh, changed the oil on my motorcycle twice. Nice. Oh, no. Uh, so I had to find odds and ends of oil in my dad's garage and take a trip over to Pep Boys and get more oil. 
Well, well done. Yes. Well played. So I, I spent three hours changing oil. And Sean, how you doing? Good, good. We have a Get Busy Living Day coming up. Yep, it's been keeping me busy the past several months. So you're getting bu- you're getting busy getting busy living. Exactly. So what's coming up next week? Uh, on Saturday for yeah. Get Busy Living, um, we have two bowling events, one in Phoenix, one in New York City. We have a comedy night in Southern California and a picnic in Denver. So it's just a really great way to celebrate getting busy living and raise funds for the young adult cancer community. And I'll also add that two of our bowling uh, attendees in the New York event are like professional-ish bowlers. So we're having like our first bowl-off, Yeah, there's which a, is pretty awesome. I, it's tail of the tape. It's like that matchup graphic that they yeah. have for boxing <laughs> events. So they created that. It's pretty funny. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, And out in, uh, in L.A., we have Nick Ross, uh, who's really great. He's in a movie upcoming called Drunk Wedding. He's on BuzzFeed <laughs> and Soul Pancake. Uh, Nick Ross, he's really funny. Um, and Gary Cannon, who is the permanent opening comic for Conan on TBS, uh, performing. So, so and it's what getbusylivingday.org dot org. That's the website. Yep, getbusylivingday.org. Well, we have a really special drop-in guest. Uh, Lori Carr is the uh, commercial oncology division chair or president or CEO <laughs> of something at Walgreens, but not the CEO of Walgreens. But definitely not. Uh, we we recently met um, at ASCO, which is the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and she's a friend of Matt Farber's, who I've worked with, who came from the Association of Community Cancer Centers and is now at Walgreens, and we have a love affair with Walgreens that goes back almost five and a half years. So welcome Thank you. to be in studio. So tell us more about the onco- commercial oncology division at Walgreens. Well, you know, Walgreens is known for their um, 8,000 retail drug stores across the country, but we actually have a specialty pharmacy division, um, and we have dedicated focus on some core disease states, oncology being one of them. Um, and really what we're trying to build is a, a different model where the patient's at the center of how patients are, are thought about and cared for in specialty pharmacy and partnering with lots of different groups, um, whether it's provider groups, patient advocacy groups, and and um, very different stakeholders in the market to make sure that we can play a role helping facilitate the best possible cancer care for patients um, as they go through their journey. Right, and that's been the buzzword, patient-centered care, yes, you know, for all yes. these years now, as if we haven't been patient-centered for the last, you know, thousand years of healthcare in, yeah. in civilization. But mm-hmm. so uh, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So, so what is like personally? What is your take on patient-centered uh, engagement? Yeah, I think that. Um, You know, a fair amount of organizations use that as a buzzword because it sounds like the right thing to do. Uh, At the end of the day, I think you really have to put not only your money where your mouth is, but really what you invest in and how you stand up an organization to think about what patients are experiencing throughout the journey um, and really understand what you as an organization may be able to do to... um, facilitate ease of use, if you will. As, as, as you well know, it's a very complex environment when you think about the experience of a, a cancer patient, certainly newly diagnosed, and, and all of the um, sort of obstacles along the way into getting good care. And organizations that really believe in patient-centric care truly take the time to understand that journey, um, really think about the holistic view of that and partnering with multiple stakeholders across that journey to help ease the, ease the burden, if you will. So you come from pharma. I do. And this was your first ASCO meeting with patient advocates. Well, I actually, uh, no, no. I worked for uh, Millennium Pharmaceuticals at the time now, Takeda Oncology. Um, And and in fact, one of our, um, one of the reasons I loved working for that organization was because I truly felt like the patient was at the center of what they were doing, whether it was research, what we did on the commercial side. It was really where I learned a lot about the journey of an oncology patient. As, As many people do, I have experience with um, people in my life who, who have dealt with oncology, but at Millennium, it was the first time that I really understood kind of from start to finish research all the way through treatment what, what that experience was like. And so it, it gave me the, the sense of what we needed to do differently in this environment um, and bringing that over to Walgreens and, and really building something out there is, is uh, personally very important to me. And what you may not know is that we've had this phenomenal love affair with Takeda through Tom Sellers. Ah! One of my and, favorite guys. And yes. Kenny, who was your uh, and um, Sean uh, Solanke? Uh, he was on the. I'm going to goof up his title. Takeda's <laughs> <laughs> been one of the major sponsors of the road trip okay. for the last couple of years now, and yeah. and they're really into employee engagement, and yep. they're very patient centered. And we, w- it's one of our most, pro- uh, I would say, uh, uh, positive yes. long term. Yep. Um, 
uh, partnerships. I can understand that. And, and I may not know who it is, as you know. Um, Communications team. Okay. So, yeah, went through um, some changes of, of people yeah. over time mm-hmm. with yeah. the merger and all of that, but very much uh, understand why you would be connected to the organization. It was very much the same when I was there, and it sounds like right. they've continued that. Kenny's visited HQ. Boston kicks off the road trip. He's met with the whole team there. Yeah. Good old Lansdowne. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> Love it. Miss it. I live out there still, but uh, work obviously out in Deerfield, but uh, lots of good friends still yeah. over there. So that's a small world yeah. that we live in. It's for really sure. cool. Well, for welcome sure. to the crazy Thank tent. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, this side of the tent. <laughs> So let's kick off the show here. We have a a wonderful in-studio guest, and I shall cue up the fabulous intro music. Matt Sobolik was diagnosed with anaplastic leoma in October of 2012, defying all predictions. He returned to full-duty status as an NYPD officer in November of 2013 after attending the OMG East conference here in New York City, and he was a recipient of the 2014 Police Commissioner's Theodore Roosevelt Award. We're going to find out what that is and more about his story. Please welcome live in studio right here, Matt Soblick, Officer Matt Soblick. Thank you. I remember vividly meeting you at the conference, God, that was 18 months ago yeah. when you first came. And uh, I, I was so taken because, you know, brain cancer is brain cancer. I, we, we try not to, like, pit one body part against the other, but right. it, there's something really unique and strange about brain cancer, it's the one organ you can't live without. You know, it's the one thing that you can't have a brainectomy, you know, and it's the one thing that really mess up your life forever, regardless of other side effects and things that can happen. Again, not a contest, but it's still something that's very different. That's right. And I have a, a rare kinship for people that I meet that don't just have or have beaten brain cancer, but just really understand what it's like to have someone stick an ice cream scoop inside your scalp and take things out of there. Yeah. So kudos to you on 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 on, uh, on getting through that. But I, I want to go back to uh, kind of your life beforehand and what that was like for you. I would assume you were an officer here at NYPD, just living your life, doing your job. And then, what were the first kind of weird things that started to make you, you know, that there might have been something strange or wrong? Well, basically, I'm I'm not the type to usually say anything uh, in regards to like small type of stuff. Um, I started in the department back in uh, 2006 as a police cadet, which was a college internship, and became police officer back in 2008. Uh, around the time of 2011, uh, my partner had passed away. He had a uh, heart attack in his home, and I had a uh, guy in my company who passed away uh, after being killed by a drunk driver on the Southern State. And uh, on top of that, I was planning a wedding, buying a house and all that fun stuff, and I would just get headaches all the time. And uh, I would just take a Tylenol or an Advil. It would go away. A couple of days later, it come back. I just re- repeated the entire process. Uh, one day, I, was, I had made an arrest, and um, during the day, while processing the arrest, I was getting a really bad headache. Uh, I took the guy to uh, Central Brookings to process him and just went completely off wire from my normalcy. I'm very much on point. Um, never really mess up anything. I ended up just walking this guy in, and while he was getting his photo taken, I just walked right out. Like, just left him Just there. like that. Just mm-hmm. like that. Uh, no one really knew what was wrong. Uh, they ended up sending me back downstairs, and I just took the guy back up to the van and sat him in the van, and everyone was just kind of looking at me kind of weird. So but it was just, like you were unconscious behavior. Pretty much, exactly yeah. what it was. Everything, everything was making sense to me, but... I couldn't see anything. It was all black. Right. So so somehow I made it up like three flights of stairs with this guy holding this guy. Yeah. Got into a van. So I obviously there was something I didn't was see anything what, wrong. Yeah. And um, they ended up taking me back to the precinct, and they told me they wanted a uh, ambulance uh, team to come check me out before they sent me home. And uh, when the ambulance team arrived, that's when I had a uh, seizure, and they rushed me to uh, right the, then and there that same day, that moment. Wow. Right? And uh, they sent me to Bellevue Hospital. And uh, fortunately, I had a misdiagnosis over there. Uh, a few weeks later, when uh, it was found out that I didn't really have the normal type of seizure, I went to go back full duty to work. And in the NYPD, we have What is see- a normal type of seizure, by the way? I'm sorry? What is a normal type of seizure? Well, nothing really came up on the, EK- on the EEGs saying that I had a seizure. Usually, if you have a seizure, there's some type of uh, blip right, uh, right. on the, uh, the EEG. Mine was completely normal. And that my doctors just felt, you know, and on top of that, the CAT scans were normal. They ended up doing a uh, spinal tap, uh, meningitis check. Everything right. was coming out normal. So they just chalked that up to a, a random one-time thing? 
Uh, well, they ended up just saying I had epilepsy. Uh, my dad, my dad actually had epilepsy when he was younger. Okay. So I think they just took that and said, "All right, well, we can't figure out what's wrong with this kid. Let's just send him on his way." I mean, and hopefully we'll argue, figure out later. One might argue not entirely unreasonable, but still, you know. So what did it take to well, what, actually get you properly diagnosed? What ends up happening in the NYPD for us to get put back to work full duty, which means going back on patrol. At the time, I was put on uh, restricted duty. Right. Uh, you have to see a, a specialist, and this specialist uh, was a neurologist. Oh, wow. Okay. He, uh, I explained the story to him, and he said to me, he's like, go get an MRI. I'm not going to tell you what's wrong with you because I don't have it in front of me, but just be ready for a phone call saying you need to go you know, to your doctor immediately. Uh, at least that's not scary and terrifying. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so went for the MRI. Uh, after the MRI, I went into work, uh, and as soon as I walked in the door, the x-ray place called me. Said, go to your doctor right now. Mm-hmm. Went there, and they gave me the news: brain tumor. Yeah, I mean, uh, and just to cross notes, I had an MRI. I, I saw a neurologist mm-hmm. who said, "There's nothing wrong with you." Although I was having, you know, fainting and dizziness and slurred speech, is like, but you should get an MRI. He didn't say brace yourself. <laughs> you were told. He just said you might want to get an MRI to check this out. And so I go over the MRI of my mother in the morning. We went out for lunch and we got home and there was a back in the nineties answering machines, right? So we got home and the machine was blinking. <coughs> Terms you can't use today with millennials. The machine was blinking. Mm-hmm. But like literally like within five minutes of us leaving before cell phones existed, they called my house and left the message. So right there. It's amazing they didn't come chasing you. I know they, the car should have like followed yeah. us to the diner. But exactly, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. So you have a brain tumor. Holy Jesus Christ. What now? Uh, well, they sent me to a surgeon, a uh, guy by the name of Dr. Fred Nobin. Uh, unfortunately, he did pass away. Uh, he he ended up having uh, leukemia, and he was diagnosed oh uh, shortly after uh, The neurosurgeon died from cancer after yes. your surgery? Wow. Yes. Okay. Um, he basically introduced the whole thing to me about how it's going to work, what what entails in the brain surgery, and what the side effects are going to be, basically telling me more or less you could kiss your job goodbye. Wow. And um, I think I was actually more upset about that than well, I was yeah. about having the brain tumor. I was the same yeah. thing. Like, like I was like, I want to play piano again. Like, oh, let's worry about keeping you alive. No, I want to play piano again. Like, right. that's, yeah, we just don't care. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And How old the, were you, by the way, at the time? At the time, I was 26. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, a month after I got married, too. Oh, because there's never really a good time for this right. to happen. Well, it, that's the way it always works. Yeah. It's uh-huh. always going to be after, like, an important part of your life. Yes, exactly. So um, I went for the surgery. I was actually in the hospital uh, for my wife's birthday. Oh. And uh, I actually made it out of the hospital in three days after the surgery. Uh, that's a pretty good – that's not bad. Yeah, I was in I, I was in for, like, ten days, but that was, like, when they chopped your head open with a guillotine. So. Right. So I walked out of the <laughs> hospital, went into the van when they were actually driving me. And uh, one, actually, someone in my unit had actually called for additional units down the block. So I actually told the guy driving me, let's just go right now. Mind you, this is like right after I just got out. I had probably, like a head bandage or something. Oh, I was, it was completely <laughs> covered. I looked yeah. like Frankenstein. And uh, obviously he wouldn't take me. Yeah, well, so I would imagine so. I was pretty disappointed about that. But uh, in the end, uh, it turned out the two of them were OK, which was most important to me. Sure. And I uh, went home. And a couple of weeks later, they gave me the call and said, turns out it's cancer. Weeks? You waited weeks for pathology? I would say maybe like two weeks. That's still a long time. Well, I, I went on the assumption no news is good news. Right. And then I get the phone call and it's But I bad mean, this news. was like three years ago. It should, this shouldn't take two weeks, three years ago. Well, there's, I, I don't know what Mine took four on. days and that was in 1996. Maybe they liked you better. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then they came back and said, sorry, you're not done yet. It's, right. it's cancer. And it was a... An anaplastic glioma. Yes. What is that? Uh, it's a combination of two types of brain tumors. Uh, it's the one with the glioblastoma right. and the astrocytoma. It's a combination of those two, if I, I believe, if I have it right. And I kind of blank out every time the doctor starts explaining it to me. <laughs> the Charlie Brown teacher and, voice kicks yes. in, yeah. And uh, they sent me for uh, radiation, and for and they gave me a uh, chemo pill called Tamidar. Tamidar, yes. Miracle pill. Yes. Mm -hmm. I took it for three months, and after the three months, went for an MRI. Everything was clear. Everything was good to go. Your spinal fluid was clean? No no mats? No. Good. Everything was good. Not good. And uh, and then they just kept me on the uh, Tamidar as a maintenance to prevent any type of future coming. 
unfortunately that didn't work out too well in march i actually uh they found a small tumor the size of a pea and uh they did one session of a specialized radiation on it was that the gamma knife or something cyber knife something like that yes and uh i go for an mri in a week or two okay to see how it goes and all the doctors are confident and it's one thing I, i always tell everybody even with the last time uh, everyone complains about all this pr- police brutality going on. Right, right. If they really want to see police brutality, they need to see me kicking this tumor's ass. Yeah, there you go. Well said. Well said, my friend. So how did you find out about our conference? Because you were, like, in the thick of it when that happened. Well, I actually brought my wristband on purpose. Uh, there was a, uh, there's a store called Spencer's. You, uh, I was just telling <laughs> Lori just about our relationship about with Spencer's. Yeah. Spen- you, so you, you got the wristband at Spencer's. Right. What ended up happening was I got an email from Spencer's saying that they had these wristbands. Um, and one of them, if, if I can use the language. You can say whatever you want on the uh, show. Thank you. <laughs> Walgreens is not sponsoring the show. <laughs> thank you very much for that. Uh, this, this one I'm actually wearing right now says, uh, no one fights alone. And... Uh, Where's the starting? Fuck cancer. Yep. And then there's another one, a red one, I believe. This one's blue. I, that's why I wore it. Yeah. Police blue, I got to uh-huh. wear it. There's another one that's red that uh, I think it said, give cancer the bird. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I got that email, and I ran running to the store, and they didn't have any. They all sold out. Yeah, we, so we tend to do that. <laughs> I was wondering, like, how, how popular can this thing be? <laughs> so I ended up going back online, seeing they still had a few online. And they actually tricked me into buying multiples right. because when I clicked on the blue one, it came up for the red one. So I'm like, all right, let me click on the Our red one. Our plan is working. Yes. <laughs> and it came in the mail. I saw the thing about stupid cancer on it. I looked it up and saw your organization and saw that you guys were having an event uh, coming up in New York City. Yeah. And just worked out. You jumped right into the deep end of that pool, my friend. Yes, I did. Were you at all introduced to any other brain cancer patients, survivors, even people remotely your age through this entire process? Well, that was you- that was one of my biggest issues was, you know, obviously when you get diagnosed with cancer, you know, no matter what, your your family's there for you, have that huge support system. I had like 34,000 brothers and sisters right yeah. by my side mm-hmm. no matter what. Yeah. But the thing is, none of them really understood what was going on. Exactly. You know, they, they were looking at it from the outside where here I am on the inside. Right. And... I needed to talk to somebody who was at least on the same page as me. And I reached out to a couple of organizations, and they set me up with three different people to talk to. One had, did he, one was um, he had stomach cancer. Another one wasn't even a cancer patient. He was a caregiver. Okay. And then the other one, he, I don't remember what type of cancer he had, but he was a cook, and he was trying to push all this organic stuff on <laughs> me. And I just said, you know what? <laughs> Screw this. Yeah, yeah. And um, I ended up making a phone call to a friend of mine uh, from the department who works in employee relations. And I said, you know, is there anyone who's had cancer that's come back that I can talk to? Right. She set me up with somebody who introduced me to a group called the Police Self-Support Group. Oh, okay. I joined that group and was basically brought in with open arms. And I've been a proud member since then. That's awesome. Uh, we do. We. It's basically a group of individuals. It's line of duty injuries, non-line of duty injuries. Major illnesses uh, in terms of cancer, we have 9/11 cancer of course, survivors. That's a big thing. We have you know cancer survivors that just had cancer, like right. such as myself, mm-hmm. and you just bond over the fact. And it's amazing that all of us can bond. You don't have to have cancer to bond with someone else right. in the group. Agreed. You're bonding with somebody. Like for me, for example, I bond with somebody who was stabbed in the head. You know, two completely right. different injuries. Right. You know, people that were shot. I'm bonding with them because we go through the same emotions. Right. And it's just amazing that it works so well together and we work so well in conjunction with each other right that you don't have to always rely on someone with cancer because the other issue i was having which you brought up earlier people hear you have brain cancer and they have cancer right they go well yeah i have cancer but it's not as bad as yours yeah so i was winning all these contests <laughs> i'm just like i don't want to win like finally so i need to lose one for yeah. once mm-hmm. exactly um so uh in, in terms of um your wife Okay. Are you still married? Yes, of course. How has she been faring through this? Has it's she been... gotten support? Are there like the the police wives groups? Do they? It, does she find support there? How is she handling? Well, it, being a newlywed through all of this, it's extremely tough. Yeah, you know, um, as far as the police wives, it's the same situation as me. I can have thirty four thousand brothers and sisters on my side, but unless they're going through what I go through, can't really relate too right. much. They're mm-hmm. there for us. 
But at the end of the day, it's not someone you can talk to right. to say, like, all right, this is normal for you to feel this way. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest problems we had was we didn't have that to be able to have someone come to us and say, listen, you're going to fight all the time. You're going to hate each other. You're going to threaten and leave each other. You're going to talk divorce. You're not going to even want to see each other. And that's what really hurt us the most. And in the end, we just we just re- were able to sit back and realize you know what, that we need to sit back and say, take a deep breath and realize this is normal. And yeah. what ended up helping her was she she actually went a different route and saw a specialist Good. to talk to. Okay. And that's helped her out immensely, big time. For me, that doesn't work. She tries to throw that onto me, say, oh, you know, go to a specialist. You know, go talk to somebody. Yeah. You'll feel much better. It, it doesn't work for me that way. I need to talk to people who are in my shoes to be able to say, all right, well, this is normal for you. Well, you could technically tell her I'm a specialist and just lie to her to make her happy. But well, she's listening to the show and will hear I just said that. So. Yeah, yeah, pretty that, much. That, that usually works in relationships. <laughs> yeah. <now. laughs> you know, I was, I was telling Lori before that there's um, there's uh, an article that comes out every now and then that says the couples that argue the most over the stupidest things have the healthiest relationships. Right. So I have the healthiest relationship <laughs> on the planet. I love you, Jessica. You know, and, and it's true. But cancer can really challenge that because you get really serious issues and post-traumatic stress which you would have normally in the line of duty anyway without having cancer you know one thing i want to add though if it weren't for her i probably wouldn't be at this point in my life you know if it wasn't for her sitting there and making sure like even though you know she would say throw food at me and say eat this it's going to cure your cancer (laughs) you know it, it didn't work but you know what at the end of the day she kept making sure i was fighting she wanted to make sure that fight was still in me even when i was sitting in bed depressed out of my mind Right. You know, she made sure that the fight was still in me and I was still good. So I owe her big time for that. Well, in, in terms of how you're faring today, you, you I, I was reading in your story, you, you literally went back on the force the, as soon as was possible. And you made an arrest like 30 seconds later. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, even funnier than that, when I was coming into work that day, uh, this kid on the train actually pulled out a bag of marijuana right in front of me. Oh, really? And unfortunately, he was in a large group with a large group. So I decided, you know what? I'm not going to test my uh, limits right now. I'll wait till I at least get to work. And um, so what ended up happening was uh, I went to uh, roll call. And after roll call, our assignments were given out. And so I was sent out. I walked outside of the transit district. As soon as I walk out, I see someone uh, use a uh, disability metro card. And I went and I arrested them. It turned out they used uh, their girlfriend's metro card, which is illegal in the transit system. They right. had, uh, if I believe correctly, two warrants. Mm. And I was able, you know, made the arrest. So a decent, upstanding citizen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the best part is um, the guy that I was working with when I had that arrest back when I had the seizure, I saw him when uh, after I finished my arrest, I went up to him. I said, I finally fi- I finished the arrest. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't wander off into right. a van or something exactly. this time. Yeah. Exactly. That's so. good. And how, so how does it feel to get your life back and, and be a part of something? And, and, you know, like you are a part of something really big and right. your story is so important and regrettably not unique in the sense of being isolated and being married and just getting your career started and, and trying to, you know, be something right. getting derailed like this what's your what's your message how do you, how do you i hate this question but you know what do you you just said your wife is the reason you're still here but yeah. how what made that happen there's something um, in you that there's a made- lot of uh self-realization that you need to go through um one of the hardest things for me was i was looking at trying to go back to normalcy and normalcy for me would have been no brain tumor no brain cancer right all this all no chemo none of this Unfortunately, that doesn't exist. Right. There's no way to go back unless we get the uh, flux capacitor from uh, Back to the Future. It is 2015, right? Back to the Future 2 happens in November. Let's see what happens with uh, these Cubs, too. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, So anyway, um, I think that was the setting tone for me was the fact that I realized there's no normal. There's no going back to what it once was. Right. There's a new normal, and you have to embrace that, and you have to accept it. And once you do, you'll be fine. And you're going to have your moments where, you know, you go back into, you fall into the little bit of sadness and depression. But at the end of the day, you realize what that you're still here. That's the most important thing. You're still here. No matter, even though you hated taking that chemo and you hated your doctors for shoving it down your throat, you know, at the end of the day, you're still here. 
You are the embodiment of welcome to the club that no one wants to belong to, but once you hear your family. Very true. Thank you. <laughs> Officer Matt Soblick, diagnosed with uh, anaplastic leoma three years ago. Um, thank you so much for all you do for us, for yourself, for your wife, and for our fair city. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Officer Matt Soblick gets wonderful applause. And now... Uh, going to hit up the news here, Kenny, a bit. All right, here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. All right, we have some meetups happening in Beach Grove, Indiana, San Antonio, Texas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Des Moines, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. And if you'd like to host a meetup, check out stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Cancer's lonely, and we got a cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our brand new mobile app that brings instant peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Download now for iOS, iPhone, iPad, and Android, instapeer.org. We launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com. Yes, cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You did not ask to get sick, and your community wants to help you. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. So it's a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer Gear. Visit StupidCancerStore.org anytime and check out our $10 clearance section. We've got all new products to choose from. And don't forget about Flip the Cancer Bird. That's StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that, that is, is your Stupid, stupid cancer, cancer News. Tonight, we're going to be joined by three esteemed participants as we discuss young adult lung cancer. Bonnie J. Adario founded the uh, ALCF in 2008, two years after her own diagnosis of stage 3B lung cancer, when she realized that awareness, fundraising, and sporadically funded research wasn't going to be enough to change the horribly static survival rates of young lung cancer, which is still only 17% after five years. Joining her... Stephen Young, president of the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute, a patient-founded and patient-focused nonprofit research consortium directly linking more than 21 academic and community cancer centers in the U.S. and Europe, and young adult lung cancer survivor Emily Bennett-Taylor, former athlete. After undergoing chemo, radiation, and surgery to remove her right lung, she now works as a spokesperson and patient advocate for the ALCF. Please welcome... To the Stupid Cancer Show, Bonnie Adario, Stephen Young, and Emily Bennett-Taylor. Hello, guys. I got to tell you, um, more and more, uh, I'm hearing young adult lung cancer, young adult lung cancer, young adult lung cancer. And you kind of have to wonder, is this new? Are we now more aware of it? Is it actually happening more? And it's opened up, you're right, a phenomenal new dialogue around why. Why does this exist? Um, so I want to start with Bonnie because you have the foundation. You 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 built this pretty much from scratch, and you're one of the loudest voices that I'm aware of uh, doing this stuff. So, um, you know, your own diagnosis clearly born of your condition. Um, what compelled you to actually go out there and be proactive? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, I'm a survivor myself, and and you know, during the whole process upon diagnosis and treatment, I realized that there was really no standard of care for lung cancer. It was like throwing spaghetti at the wall and wherever you went, you kind of got whatever they had to offer. And then then about two years into my own diagnosis, I met this young girl. Her name was Jillian Costello. She was age 20 in the coxswain for the Cal Berkeley crew team. And she had stage four lung cancer. And we were all just thrown thrown aghast at, at this whole thing. We had never heard of anybody that young prior to that ever having lung cancer. There may have been, you know, a couple of patients around the world scattered, but it is definitely a growing phenomena in lung cancer. More and more, they're athletic, they're 
they're um, never smokers. Uh, the complete antithesis of what you might think of someone diagnosed with lung cancer. Right, and it's completely changed the narrative around the guilt and the stigma of what lung cancer is or has been recognized for or thought to be for so many years now. Uh, I, I do want to just throw it right to Emily. Um, you know, you were 28. I Actually, I knew Jill back in the day when she was going through this. Um, okay. she, was, she was another voice for young adult cancer being different and needing attention. Uh, but Emily, again, athletes getting cancer, you know, prevention, research, nonsense, right? So talk us through, you know, what it's like to be in your peak condition, thinking that you're doing everything right in this universe, and then bam. Um, well, gosh, yeah, it's it's pretty devastating. I mean, you think that you're doing everything right, like you said, and then to have a diagnosis, and not just a cancer diagnosis, but a diagnosis of lung cancer, which I think most of us, and me before my diagnosis, you know, you attribute that with unhealthy people. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a, a shock for me. I mean, I didn't really think that I would ever be at risk of something like lung cancer. So how was that detected? I mean, again, like this idea of, I always, and this is a, I'm dating myself to be 41 years old, but back in like the early 90s on Saturday Night Live, they did a skit called The Lung Brush, and it was like this, it, no one's laughing, I'm the only one that gets it, mass laughing, so you know, but The Lung Brush was this, you know, they did those comedy fake commercials, but it was like a toilet bowl scrubber that you shoved down your throat like a sword swallower, and it cleansed your lungs, like that was, that's what I envisioned like prevention or early detection for lung cancer being. How How is it possible that it was this is even discovered at all let alone at stage four well you know unfortunately we don't have any pain receptors in our lungs so a lot of us are getting diagnosed at stage four because you're not getting any symptoms until it's far pretty far advanced for me um i had had a cough and a wheeze for about two months and had gone to an allergy specialist and been diagnosed with asthma and i had was prescribed an inhaler and when those things didn't work i would you know kind of encouraged to get a chest x-ray, which really saved my life. That was what, you know, it was able to identify a tumor in my right lung. I also had had some pain in my shoulder blade, which we found later was, you know, an expanding tumor had pinched a nerve against my shoulder blade. So, you know, unfortunately, we don't have great early detection systems, and that's kind of what we're, we're trying to change at the Adario Foundation, trying to, you know, make sure that we're catching this a lot sooner so that we have earlier detection, better treatments, and, you know, an increase in the survival rate. Right, which then beckons the call, why did you get lung cancer if you're a non-smoker? Is that even fair to say? And what could possibly have caused this that's part of this sort of pseudo-discussed narrative of environment and toxins and things we can't control? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So what I've learned, you know, unfortunately the hard way, but what I try to share with people is that, you know, at this point we're learning that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. Um, you know, smoking aside, it's, it's cancer. And um, for me, um, you know, my doctors literally told me, you know, you need to get comfortable with the idea that you may never know why you got this. Um, but I think that's why the ALCF is so critical in funding and supporting research so that hopefully we can find an answer. I think in my case, um, I grew up in Idaho and um, it's a beautiful state. But it also has extremely high levels of radon, which is the second leading cause of lung cancer. Right. So, you know, maybe we'll find in um, future research that I have some sort of a something in my genes that may be more susceptible to something like radon or any other environmental toxin. But at this point, um, you know, we don't know for myself, you know, specifically, and most lung cancer patients don't know exactly, you know, that, I've, that, that are non-smokers don't understand why they've gotten this. Well, next to Alaska, Hawaii, Mississippi, and Alabama, Idaho is the only state I've never visited, and now I know why. <laughs> well, that's not that's pretty understandable. Yeah. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was a reason. There was some subtext that I didn't understand. So let me throw it to Stephen because, again, cancer research is really, it's it's substantively changed in the, just even very recently, and, and I go back to 2004, when the National Cancer Institute changed their mission from curing cancer to eliminating death and suffering. And that and the Human Genome Project sort of transformed the industry around chronic condition, chronic disease, and the origins of immunotherapy and all these subtypes and these now PD-1 drugs. How are you integrating your pioneering research and how are you driving that narrative research-wise 
for lung cancer? Well, fun- fundamentally, Bonnie started two foundations, essentially. Uh, the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation, which is abbreviated as ALCF, and the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute voiced as Alchemy. Alchemy and, and uh, uh, ALCF focus all our efforts on patient-centric research. And that's not to say a lot of research going out in the world is not. But we, we look at it and say, what kind of research can we do that will actually have a short to midterm impact on patient lives today, uh, today and tomorrow? And so I think what you're seeing is a shift in uh, the balance of power, if you will, where the classic National Institutes of Health funding islands or silos of research is not a sustainable uh, model. I shouldn't say it's not sustainable, but it's not actually going to achieve our, our nation's goal of, of defeating lung cancer. Well, I mean, defeating cancer, which, as you know, President Nixon declared war on in 1970. And here we are at the cusp of incredible advances, as you said, in immunotherapy and understanding how our immune systems can go forward. But I think what we're really looking at is, and Bonnie is very, says this often, is you need to have the patient sitting at the table early on from the idea generation of the study to designing the study so that no matter what the, 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 most, the party that's most impacted by the disease is involved and thus we have better designed, smart, more smartly designed studies that will go faster and be, uh, if you will, more in, uh, patient friendly and then we all win. We all, society wins and the studies are more effective. And immunotherapy is a great example of that. And the genomics of young lung cancer study that we're doing is even a better example because uh, the idea for that study essentially came from Bonnie. Um, our investigators probably would not have started it on their own if we hadn't stepped for, if Bonnie hadn't brought up the idea and we stepped forward and said, we have this consortium, we can do this. Working together with the Bonnie J. Dare Foundation, the two, two organizations together can make that happen. Right. So how does that, again, how does that, all these brand new immunotherapies out there that are targeting like 75 cancers at once, a lot of them do like, you know, some, some uh, B cell or I'm not sure of the terms of of some lung cancers and they're very successful in very limited scope. Have you discovered that lung cancer in an 18 year old is different than lung cancer in a 75 year old that didn't smoke or did smoke? I mean, Bonnie and, and, and uh, Emily could step in as well. But we, at this point, we don't, simply don't know. We suspect, we believe it makes a lot of sense that the cancer in, in older patients who've had a lifetime exposure to carcinogens through, through just exposures to whatever is bus fumes or whatever it might be would likely be different than a, a 20-something-year-old or even younger developing cancer. We just simply don't know, which is why we launched the study that I, I just referenced. Right, and Emily, you're in this study. What's that been like for you? Um, you know, it's, it's a remote access study, so we made sure that it was a study that patients, no matter where they were, no matter what kind of access they had to treatment facilities, could participate. Um, so for me, you know, it, it holds a lot of hope. I'm hoping to, that we understand, um, you know, a little bit more about why I got this cancer and, and hopefully to help prevent other young people from getting lung cancer. But for me, it's really, it was pretty simple. You know, send my tumor tissue sample do a, you know, a blood test, and that was about it. Um, at this point, it's, you know, waiting for the scientists and the researchers to do their job. Um, so it's, it's a simple study to enter um, with, I think, a lot of promise and a lot of hope going forward for, for you know, other patients. And it, and it is a study of the genomics. I personally believe that in 10 years or under, when someone presents with cancer, any kind of cancer, They'll be treated based on their genomics and rather about the organ that their cancer is in. And what we're seeing in young lung so far is that most of them have one of these new targeted markers. We haven't, we haven't uh, seen too much of a response yet to the PDs and the PD-1s responses, but we're hoping to see possibly more of that. And we're tagging on an epidemiology study to this genomic study for young lung to find out what the things environmentally may be causing this in these young athlete never smokers. I mean, very fit young people. Right. If they're not an athlete, they're a runner or, or you know, exercise a ton. Um, we're we're going to do as much as possible to investigate this particular cohort, as well as we, we do research on every other type of cancer as well right exactly but i and i i fully agree i you you guys were at asco i met the team that was at asco and all the research coming out is even more augmentative than it was a year ago about how they're actually 
they're so desperate for patience right now. I can't help but have you guys comment on how do we get to the patients? What are the barriers to get to the patients, to get them enrolled? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a chuckleable thing to talk about. And then the, the undisclosed elephant is actually enrolling. I'm on record saying that it's like taking out five consecutive home equity lines of credit to just enroll in the process thanks to lawyers. Are you guys okay, in- I, I have a great response for you for that. Go ahead. You know, we our, our foundation is focused on access for patients to good quality care and good quality clinical trials. The problem today is you know, the patients almost get blamed for not accruing to trials, but the problem really is access. Most trials are only in maybe three to four major universities across the United States. And if you don't happen to live in that zip code, if you want to get to the best trial for your particular cancer, you're going to have to get on an airplane to do it. Right. So we have to redesign trials in the genomics of young lung. Of course, we're not looking for a drug in this particular trial, although we are matching drugs to patients with that, that are young. Uh, we were able to accrue 30% of the trial before it even started right. using remote um, consent. So patients were actually able to consent for the trial before they ever left their home. And more importantly, if they didn't, if they didn't, um, uh, uh, if they weren't um, able to be in the trial, they knew it before they got on the airplane right. or they traveled 200 miles. There's so many things we can do today with social media and redesigning clinical trials to get this, you know, so much better than it was before. So, so dare I ask, and maybe put this back to Stephen, um, is this uh, remote enrollment, is that a, a new trend? Did you invent this or has this been something discussable for years that no one's dared to even try? Well, Matthew, it's an interesting question because we actually came up with a solution working with a technology provider called Open Medicine Institute, who were fabulous, to come up with a solution that we didn't realize was an obstacle. But in hindsight, it made perfect sense that what we were doing was innovative because, back to Bonnie and, and Emily's story, no one was really thinking about young lung patients developing, you know, young people developing lung cancer because they were spread out all over the place. I mean, in the U.S., anywhere from four to six or 8,000 newly diagnosed under the age of 40. So the patients were never reached enough prominence in anybody's minds, I think, to study them, other than those of us, including Bonnie and Emily and others, that were closer to the patients. So yes, I mean, we turned this remote panel, this remote platform, was a little controversial. Uh, certain, certain institutions wouldn't consider it. In Europe, it's generally not done, but in the United States, uh, we are much more interconnected and, I think, um, uh, willing to uh, push the envelope. The reality is we're not putting any patients at risk. We're actually giving them access to testing that they could never, uh, most likely would have not gotten on their own. Right, agreed. And, <clears throat> and let me go back to Emily then. There's all these websites out there that, like, debunk clinical trials, and I was just made aware of another consortium in D.C. that's trying to build these websites that you're not a guinea pig and it, you're not getting placebo and sugar pills. Were you on that other end of stigma when this was first brought to your attention? Um, I, I was on the, you know, I never really thought much about clinical trials. Um, I had fortunately never known anyone really who had had cancer before I was diagnosed. Um, so when it was first presented to me, it was this idea of, okay, well, you know, either it could help me or it could help someone else down the road. Um, and it's a tough choice to make, I think. Um, but, I, you know, I think that there's, so much less scary about clinical trials than people think that they are. Right. Um, and, you know, I was, I, you know, doing something like this for me, the Genomics of Young Lung Cancer Study, I'm so incredibly excited about the fact that this may help, you know, someone who comes from a history of, of smoking and maybe they're tested for whatever gene we find someday and it helps them avoid a stage four diagnosis. You know, and these are all, you know, our hopes for this study, but gosh, the idea that it may help someone avoid having to go through what I went through, that's a, a huge excitement for me. Right, and so Bonnie, just some statistics for our listenership here. How many young adults, and I define young adults by the NCI, which is 15 to 39, I don't know yep. if that's your age range. How many young exactly. adults are diagnosed with lung cancer every year in the United States? Well, in the United, you know, I'm not sure what the number is in the United States, but worldwide it's five to 8,000 patients. Right. And what that amounts to 
is it doesn't it doesn't sound like a huge number in in the big number for lung cancer but if you look at all of the other cancers and some of the smaller cancers that's as many say bladder cancer patients as there are so when you when you think of the pie chart you know the old-fashioned pie chart right and lung cancer is so many so many different mutations and so many different types of cancer it's significant it's very very significant so in terms of again access to these patients i was hoping all of you to can chime into this question how do we track because i know there's seer data but that only comes out once in a while when do we know that there's a young adult diagnosed with lung cancer and how does that intervention happen in those moments you know that's that's very interesting and what it's how it's happening for us is via social media and maybe it's because the people 40 and under are more involved in social media themselves but they find us. They come to us from all over the world. We, we just brought in a, a new patient from Norway. Um, you know, we do, we do all we can. We've got so much information. But if you type in young lung cancer, our foundation is going to come up. Right. And that's yeah, another and issue. we're going to learn about this study. Sure. Go ahead, Emily. Well, yeah, to add to that, actually, just yesterday, I got an email from my mother-in-law who um, is pretty active on Inspire.com. And, you know, she said she sent me this link and she said, this is amazing. This didn't exist when you were diagnosed three years ago. And it was a list on a blog from a friend of ours, Tori Tamalia. She's a lung cancer patient. She's under 40. She put this blog up and she said, look, when I was diagnosed, these are the top, I can't remember, five, six blogs that I went to that were young people that had been diagnosed with lung cancer and they gave me inspiration. So, you know, a list like that that had all these young lung cancer patients actually um, writing their stories, sharing their successes, sharing their inspiration and hope um, really didn't exist three, even three years ago when I was diagnosed. But now it's on a blog that lists other blogs. And so for me it was, you know, I, I connect with patients every day who find me through my blog um, and connect with me via Facebook or find me on the, the ALCF site. I think it's been a huge um, social media turn recently in the last couple of years that have really allowed young lung cancer patients to connect. And, and Matthew, and I, could I throw... I'm sorry, can I throw in one more thing? I'm sorry, excuse me, Stephen. You know, the other thing for the other types of lung cancer is that you find for the elderly patients, it's their children and even their grandchildren that are helping them find these things that are also more centered in social media than than their parents and grandparents. So it's a whole new door opening for changing all of these things. And all I was going to say, this is Stephen, is getting the, this information out into the generalized press, not just in scientific journals, which is great, Matthew, that you're doing this show. Uh, Emily, I think you've shared with me that you, you wouldn't even have demanded uh, the type of testing you had gotten if you had not already heard about Jill Costello's story. Am I right on that? No, you're and, correct. That was, it was, um, you know, what seemed like a total fluke at the time. A friend of a friend knew someone had given me a bracelet for Jill's legacy, which is um, Jill's foundation. And I happened to have that in a drawer somewhere, and I just put in the back of my mind that young people could get lung cancer. And I remember that blew my mind when I heard it. And when I was exhibiting symptoms, it actually did push me to, to push for a lung, um, a chest X-ray that, that ultimately led to my, my diagnosis. You know, I would have hoped that the, uh, the Dana Reeves story would have inspired more narrative, but since it was tragically attached to Christopher, it didn't get the attention it could have had. But she was a, an amazing example of um you know of of that you can be you know not 90 and get lung cancer and a non-smoker and female you're you're absolutely correct and you know dana reeves um uh a sister is on our board of directors her name is deborah morsini and she works for foundation medicine i remember actually we started our foundation because of dana reeves uh, you know for me that was just so shocking to me i thought this is nonsense. We have to change this. We have to, we have to get the word out that absolutely anyone can get lung cancer. Jill's Legacy, which Emily uh, referred to, is a subsidiary of our foundation mm-hmm. as well. And it's a group of young people that are all associated with lung cancer in some form or fashion that have decided to come together and change the statistics for all cancer, lung cancer patients. And they are mighty. We have a, we have one young girl who is on um, the United States ski team. Uh, we have another young man who is 
on the he's a coach for the Olympic swimming team in Southern California. These people are amazing. They are going to change the face of this disease. Completely Clearly. understandable. Let me let me throw it back to Emily to close out the segment because I, I did want to focus a little more on your actual story as a young adult. Um, mm-hmm. Were you did you um, have fertility uh, issues during your compli- any of these complications, or were you offered any reproductive rights narrative or navigation? Um, I I wasn't on an institutionalized basis. I did not receive anything like that um, from my doctors. Um, and again, I think that goes back to you know the grim statistics surrounding lung cancer due to the stigma and the lack of research and funding. So, um, you know, for me, it was, thank God, you know, a friend of a friend had mentioned it. Um, I was able to go through um, egg retrieval, and then uh, my husband and I were able to save nine embryos. And we had about a two-week period from my diagnosis to when I actually started chemotherapy, um, in which that was, you know, we were able to do that um, while we were waiting for genetic testing to come back. So, um, you know, that was a huge... um, you know, it gave me a lot of hope as I was, you know, doing my treatment um, that those embryos are waiting for us. Um, and I think it's something that really should be talked about with any young cancer patient, female, male, either. Um, but, yeah, it is not, I think, it, as a young lung cancer patient specifically, I know breast cancer patients, cervical cancer patients that are young my age, it was, everything was discussed um, from a fertility standpoint with them. But for me, it was not. So that's something I'm also trying to change with the patients that I speak with is, is, you know, encouraging them to at least look into that upon diagnosis. Right. Well, we should talk even further. There's a national movement of 170 nonprofits in the young adult space that we're kind of the circus tent above around mm-hmm. reproductive rights and legislative reform. Fourteen percent of oncologists discuss reproductive rights with young adults. People mm-hmm. diagnosed in their fertile years, 14 percent of oncologists discuss this with them. So you're very Horrible. lucky and God bless you for having that luck. Um and I, I should know who your doctor was because that doctor sets an example for all the other folks. And it's not for sake of want. It's really just resource literacy. And, and the 75-year-old oncologist doesn't have the mentality of a 38-year-old oncologist who is the age that we are in our fertile years. So, um, I, and, and so yeah, I'm on board with you guys. And I, I, I'm envisioning stupid lung cancer becoming a thing. So count us in for talking offline about all this stuff. It's very exciting. Um, so a couple of final questions here, and I know we're, we're following up with another piece next week, so our listeners can subscribe to the show and check it out when we post it then. Um, where are, what are your goals? Obviously, we know the goals of the, the foundations, the, the Alchemy Project, but how long is this going to take? And we know that trials cost you know, billions of dollars, and it's ridiculous. How are you managing all of this from a foundational level? Steven? Uh, okay, I, I wasn't sure. I didn't want to step on you. Um, so there are there are so the genomics of young lung study is funded virtually entirely by philanthrop- philanthropic sources, patient grassroots funding. The Bonnie J. Darrow Foundation's been funding it, and there are about four or five other relatively smaller foundations contributing money. And we have one uh, grant from Genentech. Other than that, the funding all comes, as I mentioned, from patients. And so to that end, we created, uh, working with a, uh, a group, created a uh, social media website through Consano, consano.org, that can be a sort of a, 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 an ability to grassroots this and do sort of crowdsourcing and get young people who are more connected than, uh, I'm, I'm old, I'm not young, these young yeah. folks connected through the net and just create the wildfire of saying, look, this is, a, this is an unstudied population no one deserves cancer. We, I think everybody on this, on, on this call agrees on that. But it's even more tragic, as Bonnie has said, for these young folks. And so people do respond to that. And we, there are many ways to give and support this particular study, but also the Bonnie J. Darrow Foundation. You can go to lungcancerfoundation.org to support it. Or if you want to learn more about these research studies, go to alcmi.net. And those are two sources you can go to. And we're going to be welcoming Barbara Glitz, Dr. Barbara Glitz, next week, who is the principal investigator on this trial, and along with the two patients who are currently enrolled in this trial. So right. it's going to be exciting to see how this process works. And I think it's exciting that you're doing this, you know, in a way that kind of loopholes around the ridiculous, complicated, bureaucratic system that already exists. Exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. And, you know, this is patients helping patients. And um, it's working. It's working. And it's exciting. 
Well, I, I, we're about to wrap, so I guess my question, Emily, you know, you've been through, actually, Bonnie, you've both been through this, but, you know, Emily, your, um, your story is, 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 you know, it's not unique, sadly, that there are young women and young men getting lung cancer. I like the young lung rhyme that kind of, that kind of resonates <laughs> with me. Uh, one of the first, I just want to share with, our, with you guys, one of the first young adults I'd ever met with cancer had lung cancer. Her name was Jill Harrison. I like, and when I found out like that the other Jill, like that wasn't the same Jill, but it was weird. And Jill had just beaten like stage four lung cancer. And I'm still close friends with her, but then she wound up getting married and living her life. And she's like a real person giving back to society right now. And it just, it, it changed my mind to your point, Emily, like this is not a disease of the agent anymore. It's not your grandfather's cancer anymore. Um, what is your message as someone you know, who's not 80 years old, you know, to other women out there and other men out there about the stigma? Um, well, I think anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. And, you know, if you find yourself in that situation, you have to understand that the stats are about 10 years old or, you know, 10 years old. There are new people coming up every day that I meet who are beating it and who are living their lives um, and having successful treatment. And the stats are scary, and they're also outdated, but you just have to believe as a patient that you're going to be part of that small percentage that's going to win. You have to go into your treatment every day and understand that, you know, you are your own statistic and that you have to believe and then fight like hell to make it happen. Um, So I think, you know, I would tell patients that, you know, you can't go only off of the statistics. You have to just have a lot of faith that you're going to be able to kick its ass. Well, you clearly have, and congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. Thank right. you for having us. Yep. Bonnie, I'll, I'll give you the final word, Bonnie. You know, to, Emily, anyone can get lung cancer. And, you know, the stigma, if you look at the New England Journal of Medicine about three months ago, they published an entire study on tobacco and cancer, and it involves 31 diseases, not just lung cancer. Tobacco is a bad actor. But lung cancer has been singled out unfairly as the only cancer associated with tobacco. And anyone can get it, and we need to just take that issue off the table and stop the blame game. No, no cancer patient should hear in the same day you have cancer and, oh, by the way, you brought it on yourself. So, therefore, you don't really count. That is just not okay. Agreed. Agreed on all fronts. Bonnie J. Adario from the Bonnie J. Adario Lung Cancer Foundation, Stephen Young, president of the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute, and Emily Bennett Taylor, young adult lung cancer survivor, uh, spokesperson for and patient advocate for ALCF. Thank you for joining us for part one of Stupid Lung Cancer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye, guys. Not a bad show. Nice. What do you think? I liked it. Stupid lung cancer? Stupid brain cancer? Yep. Stupid Kenny? What? (laughs) We'll have to think on that one. But, I mean, it resonates with everything we're talking about. You know, access to care and enrolling patients. I I do like their model of kind of going outside the beltway a little bit on this, but I'm curious to see how sustainable that is. Well, it's really interesting, too, when they mentioned the stigma piece of it. Um, When I was at Millennium, we were looking at some molecules for Takeda and XUS, and we actually had to factor in what payers would pay for as a result of uh you know as a result of the stigma saying it you know is this something we should pay for because as xus it's much worse than here but you know it's just something that people don't recognize or realize is a big part of the issue particularly in lung cancer but there's others as well right and the whole stigma you did it to yourself yeah is that really fair anymore i mean there's plenty of things we all do to ourselves and the healthcare system pays for it right you know it's really unfair yeah for kenny it's the ipa and we forgive him for that (laughs) Is there a code for the IPA? <laughs> a billable code for your IPA? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Matt, any comment? You, they, you weren't on a trial. It was just pretty straightforward. Temidar? Yeah, everything, everything was pretty much straightforward. Right. They just put me on it and said, do this. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of it. I mean, we've done so many shows on destipping trial myths and my, trial myths and facts. And we're even doing something now with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb on what role do patient advocates play in, mm-hmm. in, in awareness for trials and debunking them, I still think there's a bit of a myth around them. Yeah. And and the fact that enrollment is only like 3% in young adults and 6% in adults, but yet 
85% pediatrics because it's kind of mandated. So mm-hmm. uh, interesting, interesting stuff to talk about. Sure. So we'll see you about next week. All right, folks, that's our show. Uh, now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 350th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Officer Matt Soblick, Lori Carr from Walgreens, Bonnie Adario, Emily Bennett, and Stephen Young. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing for free to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself and my team, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back on the next episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Good night, folks. Cancer survivors over 60.